Good afternoon. My name is Alessa Berardi and I teach Ancient and Medieval History at Christendom College. My specialty is the Eastern Medieval Schools and the study of medieval manuscripts. Today we will go back to the 12th century, a time of cathedrals and incredible intellectual changes of St. Bernard and of the reform of the church, in order to have a closer look at teachers of theology who played a pivotal role in the changes of their time. What was their role? Were they simply focused on passing on two pieces of information or did they have a deeper calling? And how does the answer to such question influence us today? We hope to answer to these questions and more in today's principal lecture. I would like to start with a story. We are in northern France during the 10th and 11th century. At that time, local clergy was instructed in cathedral schools, namely urban schools under the authority of the bishop, where one or two masters used to teach. From that time, we do not have many written witnesses. We have the names of some of the most important masters, for example, Fulter of Chartres, and a few documents about them. The one thing that is clear from that time is that teachers of theology in particular were highly venerated by their students who considered them as spiritual fathers and high moral examples and described them in religious terms. Then, without really knowing why, in the 12th century we encounter an explosion of witnesses and written documents and the local cathedral schools become internationally celebrated centers able to attract hundreds of students. It is a radical change. The fame of certain masters, for example, Anselm of Laon or the most celebrated Peter Abelard, the term is now the fame of specific schools, such as Laon, Rams, Chartres. Students from other countries, not only from France, leave their homes to study at their own expenses. This is a new phenomenon. In the past centuries, only a few students belonging to a religious order or to the clergy or nobility were sent to study thanks to the help of their bishop or their, even their, their parish in order to perfect the studies. Here we have students who independently undertook the study of different subjects, including theology, paying out of their own pockets and leaving their homes and their country. We probably take it for granted, but at the time it was really unusual. This unprecedented flourishing of cathedral schools in the first part of the 12th century intrigued me very much. In particular, two questions fascinated me at the beginning of my graduate studies. First, why did students leave their homes to study with 12th century masters? And second, what was so attractive about them? Guided by these questions, I found myself confronted with many new sources that suggest a narrative quite different from the one usually told about 12th century masters of theology and schools. Before plunging into the topic for my lecture today, I would like to make one clarification. Theology in 12th century schools means the study of scriptures. The usual story that is told about 12th century schools of theology is as follows. On a very general level, Scholars see the 12th century schools as introducing a strong break from the past. In theology in particular, 12th century masters started applying logic to the study of the scriptures, generating a new and more complex theological language, among other things, and this is true. Their innovation, and that's something I don't really agree with, would be at the origin of two big changes in the study of theology. 
First, they would imply a shift from reading and interpreting the scriptures to a more detached approach in which theology is ultimately not so strictly connected to the Bible. This is what scholars call the systematization of theology. Second, as a consequence of this big shift in theology, 12th century masters would not be involved anymore in a moral education of their students, as instead was happening in 11th century schools. No more organic educators, 12th century masters then became specialized professionals. That is in general the usual scholarly narrative. By looking at so far unstudied or understudied sources, I found out that things are not exactly how they've been depicted. First, I would like to show that masters of theology were in fact still and first of all Christian teachers. They were intellectuals who were still worried about moral education of their students. And in their teaching, they imitated the model of the good bishop outlined by Pope St. Gregory the Great. Second, there is also something to say about the systematization of theology. Of course, one cannot answer that big question in 30 minutes, but I will show later in my talk in the that in the sources, we do not find the will to separate the study of theology from a close reading and knowledge of the Bible. I will show that 12th century masters of theology regarded their activity as explaining the scriptures following the Catholic tradition. Probably the theme of my lecture seems a bit too specialized and abstract. However, as a professor, I often ask myself what it means to be a good teacher. How can I not only explain clearly and correctly my subject, history, but also how in doing that I can show that overall the only thing that counts in life is to be with God, which is the origin of morality, virtue, holiness and joy, even in sorrow. In looking at these medieval scholars who spend their lives teaching the scriptures, I have found an example to follow and I want to offer it to you in the hope that you find them so interesting that you would start reading them and appreciate what they have to say. Today in my lecture, I will then touch upon three main points. They're going to be brief. First, I will give a brief overview of 12th century schools, what was going on. Second, I will focus on one specific example that is, I will show how Stephen Langton, one of the most important masters in 12th century, described the duties of a master of theology. And finally, through a brief reading um, from the sentences by Peter Lombard, I will show what they meant by teaching theology. So that's my first point, 12th century schools and masters. As one of my mentors, Dr. Joe Gehring, once wrote, here I quote, the school, schools of the 12th century are one of the surprises of medieval history, end quote. The 12th century was a moment of great change at every level, social, economic, religious, and political. Today, I am most interested in the change schools underwent in northern France. As I said before, in the course of the 10th and 11th centuries in northern France, as in other parts of Europe, cathedral schools were the educational institutions under the authority authority of a bishop, where the diocesan clergy was educated usually by one or two teachers. Since not many written testimonies are left from these schools regarding these masters, we know mm, um, not many institutional details are known to us. However, as I briefly said before, we know that the masters of those schools were chosen by the bishop and enjoyed a particular veneration from their student. 
At the beginning of the 12th century, the schools that already existed in northern France, again, same examples, Laon, Chartres, and Reims are the most famous, saw a very significant increase in the number of students, and in particular students coming from outside of France. It is a radical change. The fame and growth of French cathedral schools in this moment depends on the presence and teachings of one or two famous masters. For example, the Cathedral School of Laon acquires a high reputation thanks to Master Anselm and his brother Ralph, who taught the arts of the trivium, grammar, philosophy, and rhetoric, the art of speaking well and convincingly, as well as theology. The study of the scripture, um, theology that is the study of the scriptures. Their fame is demonstrated not only by the many pieces of evidence concerning their authority and influence, but also by the fact that many of their students actually became important bishops or personality in the church. Anselm of Laon died in 1117 and the decline of Laon began. Really the fame of the school depended on him. By the mid 12th century, the most important masters of the time, in particular the best in philosophy and theology, could be found in Paris. Some of them, for example, Peter Lombard, taught at the cathedral school of Notre Dame attached to the cathedral, while others founded their own schools in the outskirts of the city. Due to the concentration of different schools and much celebrated masters, Paris became the hub for this, the main hub for the study of philosophy and theology in Europe. From the schools present in Paris, at some point before the end of the 12th century, the University of Paris was established. Second point, Stephen Langton and the Christian teacher. One of the most revelatory texts about the role of 12th century masters is a sermon written by Stephen Langton. He taught theology in Paris from the 11th 70s to 1206, when he was made cardinal by Pope Innocent III, the big reformer Pope. In 1208, he was elected Archbishop of Canterbury, and he maintained his role until his death in 1228. The sermon we are interested in is called an inception speech because it was delivered by Master Stephen on the day of his inception, that is the day he became a professor of theology in Paris. It was addressed to his students and colleagues and it is about the qualities necessary for students and teachers of theology to study and teach the scriptures. Now it's a long text so I'm just gonna summarize and analyze a couple of things. Sermons, uh, students need purity of life, simplicity of heart, attentiveness of mind, humility and mildness in order to study the scriptures, while masters should possess knowledge, a righteous life, humility and meekness. The virtues Master Stephen considers indispensable for students overlap with those expected from masters, at least in name. However, Master Stephen tailors the virtues to students and teachers respectively, underlining different aspects of the same virtue for different situations. In particular, masters need the knowledge of the scriptures in order to preach and to teach correctly. In particular, their knowledge is demonstrated by their righteous life. At the same time, scientia, this knowledge, is necessary to give righteous um, teaching. So what I mean here, I mean one has to know the scriptures in order to teach, but one also demonstrates the knowledge of scriptures by the way in which he lives his life. 
Humility is also essential both to learn and teach the sacred scriptures. Um, in the case of professors, Langton chooses the example of the prophet Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah begins with a dramatic acknowledgement of the prophet's incapacity. In response to the call from God, Jeremiah cries out for help. Master Stephen emphasizes that a professor also should always remember that he has been invested by his office by God. That is why he should teach without trusting only in his eloquence and knowledge, but rather in God. Finally, both students and masters should be meek. The former modest in receiving, the latter gentle in giving, and not proud of his intellectual or moral stature. Through his sermon, Langton mainly does two things. First, Master Stephen is here applying a traditional view of the role of the bishop as a teacher of his Christian flock to the professors of theology. This way of depicting the bishop has a long history in Christian tradition, starting with St. Gregory the Great in his book, The Pastoral Rule. Gregory, Pope from 519 to 603, wrote the pastoral rule right after becoming Pope. Throughout his work, Gregory wanted to illustrate the duties of a bishop. He specified that a bishop, sh that a bishop should take care of the spiritual needs of the people under his responsibility by celebrating the Eucharist and interceding for the faithful, and by teaching, that is preaching, and exhorting and correcting his flock. Preaching, however, is not made only of words, according to Pope Gregory, but a bishop should teach through his words and example, the example of his own life. In his inception speech, Master Stephen is clearly inspired by this Gregorian model, by this model created by Pope Gregory. But he uses it not as referred to bishops, but to professors of theology. By doing that, Master Stephen is telling his colleagues and students that being a master of theology is a calling, not simply a profession. Um, and this is made particularly clear by the example of Jeremiah we just talked about. Second, Langton presents the study of the scriptures as a conversion that is both a spiritual and intellectual. In this endeavor, students and masters are companions and masters can be true mothers only if they accept such conversion. Not without a gentle sense of humor, at the end of his sermon, Langton declares his inadequacy to be a master because he does not possess neither excellence, neither in life or in knowledge. For these reasons, he finally entrusts his tongue and mind to the divine bounty, rather than his own presumption, showing that he also needs to undergo a spiritual transformation. And here I quote, what shall I say about being a good theology professor? I, who possess eminence neither in life nor in knowledge, but by considering the inexhaustible mercy of the heavenly bounty rather than human presumption, I turn my tongue and my mind to the praise of my Redeemer, and I entrust myself and my resolution to his grace." End of quote. Third point, Christian teachers within a tradition. There is a further question that still needs to be explored. That is, how did this master teach theology? In order to answer, I looked at one of the masterpieces of 12th century theology, the sentences by Peter Lombard, who was a professor of theology in Paris in the mid 12th century. And after a brilliant career, Lombard was elected Bishop of Paris in 1159 and he died the following year. 
The Sentences is composed by four books, each one dedicated to a specific topic, namely the Trinity, Creation, Incarnation, and the Sacraments. The Sentences are generally considered one of the texts where we can actually see the shift I was telling you about, meaning when theologians start doing theology detached from the scriptures, what we have called the systematization of theology. If we look however at what the Lombard says, um, the picture that we gain is somewhat different. First, first, let's have a look at the prologue to the sentences authored by Peter Lombard himself. Concerning the spirit with which he composed this work, he wrote, here a quote, wishing with the poor widow to give something to the Lord's treasury out of her penury and poverty, we have dared to scale the difficult heights and to undertake a work beyond our strength." End quote. In this passage, Lombard is recalling to mind the gospel, in particular Mark chapter 12, verses 42-43, where Jesus points out to his disciple the act of extreme generosity of a poor widow, who donates to the treasure of the temple even the little she has a couple of coins. At the beginning of his work, the Lombard explicitly expresses his humility and explains that his work is done in order to give his contribution to the education of his student. His teachings come from his long academic activity, from reading and understanding the scriptures. Few lines below, describing the aim of his work, the Lombard adds these words, and here I quote, burning with zeal, we have striven to protect with the bucklers of David's tower our faith against the errors of carnal and brutish men. Or rather, we wish to show that this is already so protected. We have also attempted to reveal the hidden depths of theological investigations." End quote. It is clear, because the Lombard makes it ex an explicit quotation um, from Augustine, that he wants, through his book, to defend the faith against the mistake of heretics. By using the image of the bucklers of the Tower of David, which is an image that we find in the Song of Songs, the Lombard tells us that the way to defend the church from heresy, which is one of the duties of theologians, is not to reinvent anything, but to use what the fathers of the church have already written. In this sense, the Lombards will show that the church is already so protected. That's what it means. The use of that specific image, even though it would take some time to explain, really points out for us and for the Lombard students who are reading this book, that what he's talking about is, is the use of the fathers of the church in order to teach and do theology. Um, and to use the fathers of the church in reading the Bible. Um, not to be detached from it. From these two passages, we see that the Lombard conceives of his work not as something new in the way we saw before, but that follows in the tradition of the fathers. He wants to show and reveal something that has already been said, that it is important that his students know. Now it's clear that when the Lombard writes and his students like, listen to what he has to say, the tradition continues. Um, so there, something new is going to be said, but not in the sense we were saying before. Through these two examples, we can see that the Lombard considered the sentences and the study of theology as the studies of the scriptures. The aim of all his effort is to show how heresy has been already defeated. His project here is not to create a new system, 
but to facilitate the understanding of a long theological tradition. To briefly conclude, I would like to go back to the story with, with which we started, namely the two questions concerning the schools of 12th century. By reading some of the sources from that time, we have seen that masters of theology in the 12th century conceive of themselves as Christian teachers, and in fact made their own a role which previously pertained to bishops. They teach the scriptures and they consider their profession not just a simple intellectual endeavor, but as a calling. Finally, they also see themselves in the service of truth and as the heirs of a long theological and exegetical tradition. At the end of such, I hope not too long talk, it is worth, however, to ask ourselves, why is it important? Why do I care about 12th century masters and their self-awareness as Christian teachers and tenacious students of the scriptures? As an historian, I believe that it is pivotal to make an effort and let the sources speak a little bit as we did today. As an historian, I also know that I'm human and that it is impossible to be completely objective. It is difficult to read through sources. Even so, it is for sure more rewarding and intellectually more challenging to at least try and see what the sources tell us instead of just um, rely on narratives that are here. In this case, I was very much intrigued by the attraction the 12th century master exercised on all the students who left their homes and went to study with them. In the 11th century, this required, in the 12th century, this required a certain degree of radicality that we probably take for granted. To find a satisfactory answer to my curiosity, I had to delve into single masters, how they taught, what they were interested in. On a broader level, it is fascinating and challenging at the same time to find out that for 12th century masters, teaching meant more than simple instruction. For them, what it is at stake is the meaning and the truth of things. And this involves not only their intellect, but their lives too. In this perspective, the way in which they educated and not just provided their students with ideas challenges the modern teacher and sets a beautiful example for me, my role, and the role of university itself. Thank you. Okay, I see that there are questions here, so I'm just gonna read them one by one and try to answer. So first of all, were there lay catechists in the 12th century and what did their role look like? Okay, that's a very, um, it's a very good question. The reality is that um, I don't think they were, um, but in the 12th century also we have to um, take into consideration um, a category that these days is not really used, the category of cleric. The cleric is not simply an ordained priest, is someone who can access even um, the lower orders of um, the clergy. Um, and so they were not lay people, but they were not priests, many of them. Many of the students I'm talking about were clerics. In order to study and teach theology, you have to be a cleric. You, cannot be, you could not be married. But many times you were not living as a priest either. Um, you could not celebrate mass. So in a sense, the teachers of theology that we find are, in some cases are bishops or priests, but in many cases are in between what we now would call ordained priests 
and lay people. And so I think that the categories that we have are a bit different in um, the 12th century. Um, so I don't know if I can really, really answer to this question in the way it's posed. Like, second question, how did the sciences start being taught in universities? Well, um, sciences were always uh, um, were taught in cathedral schools. Here I only taught about the trivium. There is the more humanistic parts of uh, instruction. Again, grammar, philosophy, and dialectic, the art of speaking well, um, and theology. But there is another part of um, instruction that was taught um, in medieval schools that is uh, the quadrivium. These are the sciences. We talk about um, algebra, geometry, astronomy, and music. Music considered, as, like it is a science, but also considered very connected to mathematics and to the order of the universe, right? And so the quadrivium um, was taught in the same cathedral schools. There were some schools that were more specialized. For example, the school of Brahms was absolutely famous for their teaching in mathematics. Um, and these also were part of the so-called arts. So um, they were taught, um, however, not at universities. Um, they were taught in schools. At some point in the 12, well, 13th, end of the 12th, beginning of 13th centuries, we start having um, a very important university, the University of Salerno, where we have the first faculty of medicine. So I would probably say the first university scientific uh, faculty was the one of medicine. So starting from there. And then um, things developed and in early modern times, we finally find university in which the sciences, um, chemistry, more mathematics, etc., are finally taught, but not really in the middle ages for the moment. Third question. How can missionaries today incorporate good theology in their ministry? Well, um, I think for sure um, we can see two aspects that are common to theology masters uh, I was talking about. The first one is, in my opinion, um, they need a good education in theology. Um, so many good programs available. But at the same time, the way to incorporate is to leave the things that we read in theology. Um, and I am really convinced, not only by studying the 12th century, but by seeing these in action in life, the only way when theology is convincing is when theology is connected to our life. And we can see that what we learn in theology, all the truth of faith, are present and influence our life. And not only influence our life, but they change it in a beautiful way, right? So in a sense, envy for something beautiful that we see in life is, in my opinion, the most fascinating thing for a modern person. If we see something beautiful, we want it. And so is there anything more beautiful than seeing someone with a full life? No. Um, and so I have, I have interest in um, um, missionaries, Jesuit missionaries in Canada. And if you read their letters, um, there is a beautiful um, 
collection of writings about the Canadian martyrs, um, you can see that the thing that convinced people was to see how joyful, tenacious they were in their everyday life in a situation in Canada in the 17th century that was terrible. Uh, was called a lot of epidemics, um, a lot of difficulties in the mission. So I think on the one hand to know, but then on the other hand, as these medieval teachers tell us, to live and to live joyously. Four question, how can we help theologians today to embrace the vocation of teaching? Well, I would say, first of all, to pray um, for all of them. And at the same time, I think, um, I think by, um, I mean, any theologian, I don't, I don't know, in a sense, I think, I think, um, I think some theologians are called to teach and probably some theologians are not. Um, we need certain theologians to teach properly. And I think as it was at the time, certain theologians were not. For example, our friend Stephen Langton here taught for a while and then he spent, I don't remember, 15 years maybe in Rome to help Pope Innocent III to bring about a huge change in the church that culminated in the fourth uh, Lateran Council that completely changed and reformed the church um, because that was what the church needed at the time. So I think that the best thing for theologians, but frankly also for everybody of us, is to understand their vocation, whatever that is, and to embrace it. And I'm really convinced that um, we need faithful theologians, first of all. Um, and then for some of them, what is asked from them is to uh, teach. For others, is to make important contribution in tra tradition of the church, clarify certain things, right? Pope Benedict is an example. He was an incredible teacher, and then he was not a teacher any longer because the church needed him, right? Um, so I, I, I really, really think that um, the most important point is how can we help theologians today to embrace their vocation? Um, and in some cases, is teaching. Um, yes. Okay, I see that there are no more questions, and so thank you for being here, and um, God bless.